Barnabas Collins remains in a deep trance. He has employed the mysterious powers of the I Ching and gone through the door to the infinite, hoping to find and defeat the spirit that haunts the brooding mansion. But beyond the door, he has been transported back in time to the year 1897, a time of intrigue, a time of terror at Collinwood. Before we get to today's show, I just want to express my condolences to the family and friends of Mitchell Ryan, who passed away on March 4th. Mitch Ryan, of course, played the first Burke Devlin on Dark Shadows the archetypal Burke Devlin uh, for about a year on the show. He was just an amazing actor. I didn't know him personally, uh, but I did enjoy his uh, performance as Burke Devlin. I enjoyed his performances in other uh, projects as well. He was a, a phenomenal actor, trained stage actor, was really sharp up until his passing from uh, what I understand. And I actually, even recently, I saw him um, perform in the uh, smartphone theater production of uh, What Friends Do, Hashtag Expendables. Uh, it was written by Susan Sullivan, who she was also in it, as well as Catherine Lee Scott and David Selby. And Mitch Ryan was fantastic in that. He was also in uh, the uh, A Dark Shadows Christmas Carol, playing several parts in that, including the narrator. His autobiography recently came out as well. Uh, that's available on Amazon. It's called Fall of a Sparrow. So you can pick that up on Amazon or on barnesandnoble.com. I also enjoyed him as uh, Will Riker's father on Star Trek The Next Generation. He was in so many things. I mean, you just he would show up a gross point blank. He would just show up in these films or shows and uh, I'd always get excited to see him. He did a voice in Justice League. Uh, he was, I think he was High Father in the Justice League, the Bruce Tim animated cartoon. He would, you just instantly, it's like, wait, that's Mitch Ryan. I recognize that voice. Um, so I was really sad to hear about that. We've, uh, we've lost so many cast members from Dark Shadows and, um, Mitch Ryan was part of the original lineup of Dark Shadows right in that very first episode. He was the the first anti-hero of the show. He was supposed to kind of be the villain, but also kind of not. His Burke Devlin was, there was a real edge to his Burke Devlin. Uh, he was dangerous. Burke Devlin was dangerous, but we liked Burke, you know, his his fondness for Vicky, his fondness for David, his respect for Elizabeth, all of that kind of came through. And we, even though he was out to destroy the Collins family, we still liked him. And that, that speaks to Mitch Ryan's a acting ability. Um, I did reach out to some podcasters, fellow podcasters, to ask if they wanted to submit any tributes to Mitch Ryan. And I did receive a couple. I think there are going to be a couple more possibly coming in. I will put those at the end of the episode. As of this recording, one of them is from Phantasmo After Dark, my friends Robin Phyllis Floyd, and one of them is from Jewel Sains at Resident of Collinwood, the YouTube channel. So stick around after today's podcast discussion to hear those tributes. Be careful, my friend, where you tread, for I warn you now, there are spoilers ahead. 
Welcome to Terror at Collinwood. I am your horror hostess, Danielle Oliveira Galerter, aka Penny Dreadful. And I am super excited, very excited to welcome my guest today, Joe Escobar. Joe is a longtime Dark Shadows fan, a graduate of the University of Rhode Island. Joe originally hails from Newport, but moved to Texas in 1986, where he's been an English teacher for 36 years. He's married to his wife, Sally, and they have one child, Elizabeth. He went to almost Every Dark Shadows event held between 1983 and 1991 contributed pieces to the world of Dark Shadows, wrote an unofficial novelization of Night of Dark Shadows, and edited four issues of an online fanzine called The Collins Mausoleum. Welcome, Joe. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. I was sorry I missed you at the Seaview get-together uh, on Halloween. I was there a couple of weeks before you got there, but hopefully uh, hopefully, they, in a future year. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, I go to Newport a lot, too, so who knows? Maybe we can arrange something. Right, because you're you're originally from from here, from from these parts. You escaped the cold weather, but you could not escape the pull of uh, of Collinwood. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Joe, tell us, um, you know, what what was it like growing up in Newport, within a, a stone's throw of Collinwood itself? You you were like right there. So, what was that like? Did you ever go visit the property? Oh yeah, we used to drive up on our ride up on our bikes, my friend Jim and I, and we would. Just hang out there. There was never any problem with getting on the grounds because it was owned by Salve or it was leased by Salve and they didn't have any problem with people just walking around any of their properties as long as you didn't mess up the place or do anything to damage them. Yeah, I guess you couldn't any more than the students themselves were from Salve Regina University. I heard stories about students swinging on the chandelier and crazy stuff like that. You know, the, the chandelier is just magnificent to imagine kids like jumping on that thing is just madness, you know. So today we're going to be talking about the 1897 storyline, which is a, it's going to be a substantial discussion here. But before we dive into that, I want to, yeah, to say the least, that's a, that is a, a, a long storyline. But um, tell us a little bit about your, how you got into Dark Shadows and spooky stuff. And, and things like that? Well, when I was little, my mother wouldn't let me watch the show. A lot of my friends were watching it, but she felt like it was a little too violent for me at age six because I was kind of in that borderline age where some of the you know, some of my friends were watching the show, but a lot of my friends weren't allowed to watch it. And uh, I was always fascinated with it. I have some vague memories of the show or and some false memories. I have a memory of Quentin being chained to a wall and these guys, this, these guys um, watching him change and they have a gun, they're ready to shoot him. Found out later that was actually Chris Jennings. But right. I, my, in my memory, I see Quentin mm-hmm. because memory works that way. But I got into uh, Dark Shadows through the Ross novels. My friend Jim brought four of them to school one time and we were out, I would read them after he read them. And then it was on Channel 56 out of Boston around that same time. So I'd say about a couple of weeks after I um, read the first novel, uh, um, Mystery of Collinwood, I watched my first episode and it was the one where Maggie is attacked, but she goes and she goes to the hospital and disappears. And I was, I was really disappointed because Barnabas didn't show up. I thought he was going to be in every episode. I mean, Captain Kirk's in every episode of Star Trek. <laughs> I thought Barnabas was in every episode of Dark Shadow. Were you surprised coming from the Ross novels going into the show about um, the characterization differences and how Barnabas was portrayed or did it dovetail nicely into the show? Or 
It was very surprising to me because um, the first novel I read with Barnabas was uh, Barnabas Quentin and the Body Snatchers. And he's the hero in that. Uh, and I was also surprised that Quentin wasn't there. I mean, I thought Quentin was there from the beginning, too. I didn't realize that. Or not even the beginning. I mean, I, I kind of figured out, Jim and I kind of figured out the first four books, five books didn't have uh, Barnabas. So we figured out that he must have come on the show later. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we just we we just knew it was totally illogical that they would put out five books without Barnabas if, if he was on the show. So did you uh, did you collect any of the the merchandise at the time outside of the Ross novels? Oh, I got whatever I could find anywhere. I mean, we collected pages from Sixteen Magazine. You know, when we find them at junk shops or sales, uh, we collected books whenever we could. The comics, whatever whatever I could find that was Dark Shadows, I I would collect. And uh, interestingly, you went to college with Joanna Going, who played Victoria Winters in the 1991 Dark Shadows series. That is that is amazing. And didn't she joke with you about you reading Dark Shadows books at the time? Yes, she went to high school. Uh, oh, high school. Junior high, junior high and high school. Okay. Uh, I met her in seventh grade. We had classes on and off. And then she was really into the arts, not surprisingly. And... One day we were taking we were taking a drama class together. That's where we kind of I wouldn't say we became really good friends, but we you know were friendly in high school in that class because it was a small class and we were constantly grouping with everybody. And the on a rotating basis, you wound up being in groups with everybody in the class. You wound up liking just about everybody. Anyway, she told me that um, I shouldn't spend so much time reading Dark Shadows novels. I should branch out into like Shakespeare and. Um, <laughs> And then she wound up being on the show and at our reunion, which was 91, right after the show aired, uh, I told her that she really should not waste time on Dark Shadows. She should be doing more artsy things like Shakespeare. <laughs> she didn't. I don't think she knew what I was talking about yeah. until I explained it. Yeah. And then she laughed. I think she was being polite. That was kind of corny, I think. But <laughs> That's great. And you interviewed her after that, right, for the 91 Concordance? Right. Yes. I had asked her if she would consent to an interview. And we were both busy in Rhode Island. So she said, yes, so, but let's do a phone interview when we both get back. She went back to California and out to Texas. And then we did the interview on the phone. How how did you discover the the Dark Shadows fandom? Because you've contributed to the world of Dark Shadows, like poetry and and stories. You've done your own online zine, the Collins Mausoleum, which you brilliantly made into PDF downloads so that people could print it out if they wanted. And you wrote your own novelization of Night of Dark Shadows, because of course we had the House of Dark Shadows novelization that Dan Ross did, but we never got a Night of Dark Shadows uh, novelization. So that's really great that you did that. So how how did you find your way to the Dark Shadows fan community? Actually, two ways that hit, my, hit me at the same time more than a week, a couple of weeks of each other. Um, Jeffrey Arsenault used to run a fanzine out of Cumberland, Rhode Island called The Collinsport Call. <laughs> Somebody in one of my classes saw me reading a Dark Shadows novel and she knew Jeff. She was not a Dark Shadows fan herself, but she knew Jeff and uh, gave me his contact information. And before I even got the first issue, though, I picked up Famous Monsters of Filmland, the one with Wrath of Khan on the cover. And that had an article on Dark Shadows. And it also had, I forget whose address it had. It had an address maybe for, maybe for Kathy Resch or, or Dale Clark. I'm not sure. But, um, I, it, you know, once you got one zine, you got ads for all the other zines. And you were, you were connected to fandom. Yep. Uh, I got the Collinsport call first. But then 
by the time I got that, I already had other fanzines on order through the, through the famous Monsters of Filmland um, information. And, and what prompted you to write a novelization of Night of Dark Shadows? Well, I always loved the um, movie, and I was writing a novelization in college, but then I found out that there was an incomplete script, I mean, an incomplete movie, and the script was much more vol- uh, voluminous than the, the movie itself, that the movie was un- incomplete. And so I just abandoned the project because I didn't have a copy of the script. I didn't know where I could get one. Mm-hmm. And by the time I got one, I was too busy with other things to really have it on my mind at that moment. But then years later, when I found out they were not going to do the um, restoration, I was very, very, very upset. I mean, yeah, uh, almost depressed. It didn't quite put me into a depression, but I was very disappointed. And that was the way, my way of coping. I just started saying, well, I'll do something positive and i almost feel like i've seen the movie because i had to read the script deconstruct the scenes reconstruct them in my mind and put them into words so in in my mind's eye i feel like i've seen the movie and i often wondered if i'll be disappointed kind of like when i read i don't know if you're familiar with doctor who but there's a story called two of the cybermen and i wanted to see that show but it was lost then they found it and after I've seen it, it's it was like could not live up to my mind. Sure. Yeah, what, what you imagined. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, it is really heartbreaking that the restoration hasn't been released yet. But I'm still hopeful because Darren Gross, uh, you know, he's done so much to find all of that footage, to re-record all of that audio and uh, put, put it together. And I'm hopeful, especially if we get a new Dark Shadows, like the Dark Shadows reincarnation, if that's successful we could see something like the Night of Dark Shadows full restoration released as it should be. You know, and when Ansel Farage was on here, you know, we talked about all the different streaming, like we have Shudder, like we have horror specific channels. We have all of this Netflix, all of these things out there where potentially we could see something like this debut through a streaming service, you know? So I really hope that we'll get to see that at some point. I really would love, love to see it. Uh, I believe it's done. I think it's ready to go. So let's keep our fingers crossed for that. I'm hoping the digital technology will keep bringing the price down on a lot of these editing things, and maybe that will also be a factor. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully so. Um, have you uh, introduced your your daughter to, to Dark Shadows? Oh, yeah. she. Uh, <laughs> I was watching the show one time when she was in third grade, and um, I heard something behind me, and she was sneaking out watching it. I was watching about nine o'clock and I was asking, what are you doing here? Are you watching this? And she said, yes. It was the episode where David was attacked by the bat. Oh, cool. And apparently she snuck out a few times to watch it behind the couch. Kind of <laughs> the reverse of the Doctor Who thing, watching behind the sofa. <laughs> so I just told her that she could, I let her finish the episode. And then I told her we'd find a more appropriate time to watch it. Nine o'clock was well after her bedtime, but. Oh, yeah, we became uh, big fans you know, together watching it in the early 2000s. And do you tell your students about it? I know you're an English uh, teacher. Do you, do you ever bring Dark Shadows up in your classes at all? Occasionally, but it's not really relevant to them. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's not something that's, that, they're, that they see very often. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have had a couple of kids look at something on the wall, and one or two did tell me a couple of years ago that they um, were watching on Netflix when it was on okay. Netflix. They had they were familiar with it. That's great. Um, I have brought it up occasionally uh, too. You know, uh, but a lot of the students, like you say, they're 
I was, I have a, a necklace with Bela Lugosi's uh, face on it. And I remember one of my students said, who's that? What's that on your necklace? I said, oh, it's Bela Lugosi. And it was just silence in the classroom. I was like, you guys don't know who Bela Lugosi is? I said, Dracula? They knew who Dracula was, but they didn't know who Lugosi was. I said, you guys are breaking my heart. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. But every, every once in a while, I do bring, when I'm talking about um, in lit, lit classes, if I'm talking about anti-heroes, like different types of um, protagonists, and sometimes I'll talk about anti-heroes, and sometimes I'll use Barnabas as an example of somebody who could be described uh, in certain storylines, etc., as an anti-hero. Um, but moving on, let's talk, speaking of anti-heroes and protagonists and uh, literary influences, uh, let's take a look at 1897, the most successful uh, of the Dark Shadow storylines, at least ratings-wise. Uh, this storyline aired in 1969 at the height of Dark Shadow's fever, and this is where it really hit its height. So 1897 is your favorite storyline, right? Yes. Why, why, why so? Well, it's got Quentin as the werewolf, which coming from the point where I got into the series with the Ross novels and the comics, I kind of thought that was Quentin's thing. I thought he was always the werewolf. I, I didn't realize that, well, not only was there Quentin who wasn't a werewolf, but also there were so many Quentins. I mean, it, it just got ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so to me, that particular storyline is kind of like the, it's kind of like the touchstone that I got into Dark Shadows with. And for me, it's classic. Yeah, it's, uh, it's such an incredible storyline. It's so vivid and colorful and the characters are so much fun to watch. Uh, you have the writers firing on all cylinders at the top of their games. You have Sam Hall, Gordon Russell, and Violet Wells. I mean, that trio of writers just was sensational. You know, Sam Hall was a really witty. He had this, because uh, 18, there were a lot of funny moments in 1897, not at the expense of the drama and the fantasy and the scary moments, but it added to it. It added that distinct flavor to that storyline. And then you had Violet Wells writing amazing dialogue, such great dialogue for the characters. Her Angelique just was so well written. I mean, she just really beautiful dialogue. And you have Gordon Russell, who was always like the backbone of the show writing wise, I thought, because he had he made strong choices in the plot and took things in specific and definite directions. And just 1897 was so good. And you can tell the actors just seem to be having a blast playing those characters. And then you get Quentin, um, because we had seen Quentin as a ghost prior to that, and Beth too. And then now we see them when they're alive. And David Selby, it's very easy to see how David Selby became a mega star on Dark Shadows. You know, when they always joked, oh, you know, it's going to be like the silent film era, you know, like going to talkies. Is, yeah. is it going to be successful or is, are they, is the audience not going to like it? And he, thankfully, he was so engaging and fun to watch. He was a rogue. He had that wry sense of humor where he just arched his eyebrow and would make a kind of a wise guy remark about, you know, whatever was going on. And it was so much fun to watch Quentin. And then you have Barnabas in the mix, who's trying to solve this problem. He's a vampire again, which everybody loves to see Barnabas as a vampire. That's what we want to see that, you know, Barnabas is a vampire, but he's also trying to unravel this mystery of Quentin Collins. You bring Angelique in and now Angelique is sort of a, a become an ally to some extent. Uh, you know, you never know what Angelique's unpredictable, but you get Angelique versus Laura. Laura Collins comes back. I mean, this is, and then you have the family. You have Joan Bennett, 
playing Judith Collins. You have Edward Collins, played by Louis Edmonds. Carl Collins, played by John Carlin. And Carl Collins is such a wackadoodle, you know, prankster, a very different type of character, something we never have seen on Dark Shadows before. It's a whole new flavor of Dark Shadows, I guess. So you have Magda and Sandor, the gypsies, very colorful characters and fun to watch. And of course, you know, you're, you're going to do a werewolf, classic werewolf storyline. and uh, You're going to, you got to have the gypsies. It's the whole wolfman thing, right? Really so much fun to watch. And it's very easy to see why this storyline was such a huge hit with viewers in the 60s. And even to this day, if somebody asks me, oh, I want to get into Dark Shadows. Where should I start? I, I always say the big three storylines you got to watch are Introduction to Barnabas, 1795 and 1897. Those are required viewing, but I kind of ease people in with 1897 just because it grabs you right away with that episode 700. Right. The storyline begins with Barnabas, and we're going to try work down the road as we go in, into these episodes. I will circle back and drill down on specific characters and specific subplots and things like that. This is going to be kind of a more general overview of 1897. I'm going to try to hit all the big stuff. And I, I did pull some information off the fandom wiki just to keep myself on track here because this is such a, I think this was the longest storyline they did in the show. By far, yeah. By far, yeah. Nine I mean, months, 180 episodes. Like that. Yeah, I mean, Adam was pretty long, but this was this was even longer. And pre-Barnabas, you could say that's too. I mean, you have the overarching the Burke Devlin thing happening. It's all kind of simmering when we get to Laura, but we have the Burke Devlin and Bill Malloy and then and, um, and Matthew Morgan stuff and Vicky searching for parentage. But then you have the Laura storyline, which is kind of its own thing. So, but 1897 also has two arcs, but the overall arc is Quentin's origin story, right. basically, you know? So um, Barnabas uses the I Ching uh, and sends his astral body back in time. His consciousness inhabits his body in 1897. And of course, we know his body in 1897 is chained in the mausoleum. He is still a vampire in 1897. And he wills Sandor. Magda's looking at her crystal ball and they're looking for treasure, you know, Colin's jewels. And uh, she sends Sandor to the mausoleum. They see the mausoleum, the crystal ball. He releases Barnabas. Barnabas bites Sandor, puts him under his power and takes up residence uh, in the old house. Um, uh, meanwhile, we are at Collinwood. We have the uh, grand matriarch, Edith Collins, grandmama, who's on her deathbed. <laughs> <laughs> she was great. She's on her deathbed, and she. but before she dies, she wants to reveal the secret, the Collins family secret to Edward. She's going to pass this secret along to Edward. Quentin comes home, the, the black sheep of the family. The prodigal son returns, and Quentin's bad news uh, right from the get. Fun to watch, but you know, he's a rogue. He he's dabbles in the occult. He's a womanizer. He drinks. He's so much fun to watch, but you know, he's he's trouble. And what was your, what was your reaction from you know Quentin as a ghost and then seeing him alive? That contrast, what, any thoughts on that? Well, I used to collect the audio in college. That was my first really regular exposure to Dark Shadows. And I got 1897 first. I started with, well, I started after 1795. I've got 1897. A small collection of people that had taped the show in the um, 60s. And then the, mm -hmm. these picks were making their way around fandom in the 80s. So I had a select number of videotapes with nothing to watch them on. I just got highlight episodes that I could find. Uh, but I, and I would sometimes prevail upon people to let me watch on their video recorders. 
But um, for the most part, I listened to the audios and I got the 1897 story first. And then I went backwards later on and listened to the 1969 ghost story. So for me, it was, I, I was aware of what the story was about, that he had been a ghost, but I really was kind of impatient to get into this, the werewolf episodes. So it was really kind of a reverse for me going backwards later. Mm-hmm. I, watched, I watched much of the show out of order. Is, is the werewolf your favorite of the classic monsters? No, not necessarily. Uh, mm-hmm. I like them all, the vampire, but I like that combination. I was always fascinated from the first time I read Barnabas Quentin and the Body Snatchers of this idea of the vampire and the werewolf teamed up. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it didn't happen very often in Ross's books, but mm-hmm. that was my first idea of what Dark Shadows was. So you don't have Barnabas and Quentin necessarily teamed up, but you do have them playing off against each other and two monsters in the same storyline. Yeah. In this storyline, you know, we have Edith, she dies before she can tell the secret to Edward. And the secret, of course, is Barnabas, who has been sealed in the in the mausoleum. She sees him and she dies before she can um, tell Edward what the secret is. Subsequently, uh, there is the reading of the will. Uh, and, but before then, Quentin tampers with the will. He gets his uh, his lawyer friend, who's also a Satanist, uh, Evan Hanley, played by Humbert Illustrato, to um, <laughs> to alter the will. And there's some back and forth with the will. Barnabas gets his hands on the will and gets uh, Sandor to, to re- rewrite it. I mean, there's this whole episode with the reading of the will with the family in the drawing room. It's just so much fun to watch that pull up and all of those characters uh, bouncing off each other and interacting with each other. Um, you know, ultimately Quentin doesn't get what he, Barnabas kind of reverts. The, the, the will is uh, decrees that Judith is the mistress of Collinwood, but Quentin will always have a home at Collinwood. They can't kick him out of Collinwood. So he, he sticks around. Um, while this is going on, we also find out about Jenny Collins, played by Marie Wallace, uh, and uh, Rachel Drummond, who is the governess, comes to the house. And they do J- another iteration of Jane Eyre here um, with Rachel as the Jane Eyre character and Jenny Collins as Bertha uh, Rochester's wife, Mad Jenny, who turns out is Quentin's wife. And she's been driven mad because Quentin left Collinwood with Edward's wife, Laura, uh, and Jenny, have, we've come to learn, had two children. What do you, what did you think of Jenny Collins? Oh, I loved, I loved her. I thought she was, she was just wickedly crazy, and uh, uh, I didn't really know what she looked like. A lot of that was my problem with a lot of the characters. I didn't have to know what they a lot of them looked like until I saw pictures of them in the various fan magazines. But she was kind of almost exactly like I pictured her, you know, the, just the, with the crazy hair and crazy eyes. I just, just loved, just loved her as a character. Mm-hmm. Marie Wallace is a wonderful person too. She's one of the first. Uh, she was at one of the first um, events I went to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to get her on this podcast at some point because I think she'd be really fun to, oh, to talk to. Yeah, she, um, you know, she of course had played Eve prior to playing Jenny, uh, and Jenny is just such a such a tragic character. So much fun to watch, very compelling, but very tragic as well. Um, she's uh, being taken care of by Beth, who's secretly kind of the Collins family is having her. You know, Jenny is this big secret. Nobody, Quentin, when Quentin comes back. He doesn't know Jenny is still there. He doesn't know, he doesn't seem to really care about Jenny at all, you know, uh, but she is there. And Quentin has set his sights on Barnabas. Now, Barnabas, he sees Barnabas as a, as a threat. 
So he and Evan Hanley conduct this ritual on uh, to summon, uh, you know. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> so Nancy, and of course, it's Angelique who's coughed up from the bowels of hell and sent to uh, Collinsport. So now we have Barnabas, Quentin, and Angelique uh, in in motion here in this storyline. Uh, the the big guns. I'm, I'm kind of jumping around a lot here, but we're kind of hitting the big stuff. Jenny finds out Quentin is around. She knows that Quentin is with Beth, and there's a torrid affair happening there as well. So Jenny kills Quentin. She stabs Quentin and kills him when they when they reunite with each other. Quentin is killed and Angelique brings Quentin back as a zombie. I know a lot of people refer to Jeremiah as a zombie. I never saw Jeremiah is not really a zombie. He's more of a revenant. He's more of a revenant because he can, he, there's a physical aspect to Jeremiah. You see his hand come out of the grave, but he can also disappear. His voice echoes as his body dematerializes. You know, he's not really... Uh, Quentin literally is a zombie and referred to as a zombie in the storyline. And Barnabas you know, remembers from the West Indies how to summon a zombie back to their grave and, and all of this stuff. So that was that was fun to see that. Uh, meanwhile, Quentin's spirit inhabits young Jameson, who was played by David Hennessy. And Jameson is a major player in this storyline, too, and becomes sort of the, the key to this storyline in many ways, as we find out. You know, he is actually the one person that Quentin ever actually loved was Jameson, which ties back to why he was fixated on David and taking David into the afterlife. So it's really messed up here. It's sad. You know, you, you gain some. I think Quentin as a character grows over the course of 1897. You see his character evolve. Um, any thoughts on that and sort of the evolution of Quentin over the course of the storyline? Yeah, he does uh, evolve into somebody. He starts out with someone who's very self-centered and doesn't care about anyone but himself. And then towards the end, he starts to develop a conscience and compassion towards some of the others. Uh, you mentioned earlier that, that you had Barnabas, Quentin, and Angelique together. This is really one of the one of the only times in the series where they're interacting a lot as these characters. Because mm-hmm. in, in Leviathan, Angelique comes in kind of late. And then, of course, you have Parallel Time. And then you have 1840. Yeah, the summer, she's not summer. there in 1970. Yes, yeah. not there in the summer of 1970. So it's really a rare time for all of these characters to um, interact together. And you kind of have them all develop a connection or a respect for each other, if not really affection. Like, for example, uh, towards the end, mm-hmm. Angelique, well, I maybe it's stooping ahead, but when they have an agreement to marry, and then she puts it off. She puts it off for a while. You just, I think, you kind of have to, these characters develop into. I won't say friends, but at least not enemies. Yeah, I agree. There's a there is a, a respect that develops between those those three characters. And Julia comes in later too, and she's part of that as well. Then she becomes like that fourth part of that because then you have a great a great scene uh, with uh, Angelique and Julia. They develop that sort of respect for each other. So it is interesting watching this develop, and also with Quentin. Barnabas like at first they're at odds with each other but they become allies over the course of the that storyline uh so really fascinating development with these characters they don't remain stagnant they do evolve and it's it's really fascinating to to watch that um now of course Quentin, once things are, are set to rights, we have Reverend Trask come in, the, the descendant of the original Reverend Trask, Gregory Trask, who shows up with his uh, with his daughter Charity and his wife Minerva. And uh, unlike the previous Reverend Trask, 
who was also bad news, but the original Reverend Trask was a fanatic who believed in what he was saying. He was this frenzied witch hunter who really believed, whereas this Trask is a hypocrite. Uh, this Trask is real, and this is a tro- this is an archetype in Gothic fiction, you know, the, the evil cleric, you know, the monk kind of character who's, he's a, a hypocrite, he's a, a perv, he's a, uh, he's a, a abusive to the children at Worthington Hall, the school that he is, runs, who's ostensibly a charitable school for children. He's really mean. It was right out of Charles Dickens, actually, that that's uh, Worthington Hall. Is it, was it Nicholas Nickleby? I, I, I want to say it was Nicholas Nickleby, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So we have Trask come in and he tries to return Quentin's spirit pull Quentin's spirit from Jameson and return it to Quentin's body and apparently succeeds. Of course, we find out it was Angelique who did the, did the work behind the scenes there to, to, to set things to right again. Uh, but Trask, of course, everyone thinks Trask did this. So he's now uh, kind of entrenched himself at Collinwood uh, or nearby. Judith takes a shine to Reverend Trask. So he's, he's around. And now, of course, Jenny, Quentin now wants to kill Jenny, which he does. He ends up killing, strangling Jenny to death when she finds him in bed together. So he kills Jenny. Little did we know that Jenny was actually a gypsy and Magda's sister. And when Magda finds out what happened here, she sets a curse on Quentin curses him as a werewolf. She puts the werewolf curse on Quentin. Uh, And I think it was Patrick McRae when he was on here pointed out this curse. It's sort of an interesting parallel to the curse Angelique puts on Barnabas, the vampire curse. Like it, she initiates the curse in the drawing room of the old house. She gives him that drink and that's kind of the first step in the curse. Of course, then she goes off and does that great spell, that great gypsy spell to put the, the curse on Quentin. And during the full moon, he does indeed transform into a werewolf. And this links back to part of the reason Barnabas is there. Barnabas is there to save David's life, to try to save David's life, because Quentin's spirit in the in the future is taking possession of David uh, and Amy. But David is on the verge of death. But also Chris Jennings, there's some mysterious connection between Chris Jennings and Quentin. So Chris Jennings in the present, his werewolf transformation start to go kablooey. He just starts turning into a werewolf at any time. And at one point he just doesn't turn back. He's, he's a werewolf, just stays a werewolf. So Barnabas is trying to find out what this connection is. And we learn, of course, Quentin and Jenny had children and Chris is Quentin's descendants. The firstborn son will inherit the werewolf curse. And I've heard people say, well, Chris and Tom are twins. Why does the Look, if twins are born, one is going to be born before the other. So Chris was the first one born and Tom was the second. That's why Tom didn't, didn't end up becoming a werewolf. That's something I've heard fans over the years will sometimes comment on that. Well, we call them twins based on the visual evidence, but I don't think they ever even say on the show that they're, that they're twins. They just say brothers. I mean, I'm not saying they're not twins, but um, that's never made. That's never been, um, although you know, telling the brothers apart. I mean, yeah, that dream Joe has where, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, I mean, they look, yeah, I know, I know what you mean though. Um, we also have another big component here. Laura Collins returns, Edward's yeah. wife, Laura, who, I mean, I think it's so amazing that Laura came back 
uh, to the show. And she's the perfect character for this because she is a phoenix and she's reborn. And of course, it doesn't line up with what she said when we first met her in 1967. But, you know, maybe she, you know, we don't, well, not with what she said, but with what they researched, Vicky and, and Frank Garner and Burke and all of them were trying to find out about Laura, but it was supposed to be every hundred years. But uh, that's okay. Maybe there were more incarnations of Laura apparently that we didn't know about in between, and that was really cool to see Laura Collins again in 1897. For longtime viewers of the sh- people who were on board before Barnabas, that must have been a real treat to see her again because a, a lot of the people who watched Dark Shadows started watching it after Barnabas came on the scene. So that must have been fun to see. What were your thoughts on Laura Collins? Well, I thought she, I thought it was amazing. I mean, I, I just was amazed by the whole story. It was just like one surprise after another. Of course, I knew very little about Laura in the 1967. I, I don't remember when I was, when I became aware of that storyline. I know there was a book that came out and a fan book that came out where they tried to reconstruct the mm-hmm. pre-Barnabas era. But for me, it was just fantastic to hear her. I was amazed by um, amazed by the character. I remember uh, the way she um, reacted. Well, she got played off of David Selby. They played off each other. It was exciting too. Like when when she tells him dying is not so bad, Quentin. Once you get used to the idea. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I've often wondered how many of the original fans were watching when Laura came back on because I've I know of several people who watched from the beginning. Mm-hmm. who actually didn't mind the occasional ghost and Laura, and they didn't even mind Barnabas. But when they got to 1795, they're like, oh, which? This is just too ridiculous. Oh, come on. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, this is it. A lot of the audience was the, the average soap opera viewer. And for some of them, it might have been a little out there when you start having monsters left and right. You know, I mean, the show was always different from the beginning. I mean, with a gothic mansion on a on a cliff and uh, legends in this small seaside town, but. I could see how the average soap opera viewer, somebody who's watching afternoon TV and the transition to sort of the monster kids who were obsessed with monsters in the 60s and famous monsters of film land and Aurora model kits saying there's a vampire on TV. There's a, there's a there's a witch. There's a werewolf. You know, this transformed the audience became horror fans or kids monster fans who watch horror hosts showing universal horror films and going to the theaters to watch the new hammer films when they would come out and stuff like that so this is what dark shadows kind of morphed into so i can see how if you're into like general hospital or days of our lives or or something like that now you're it's a monster mash every week on tv if you're not into horror fantasy or sci-fi which Dark Shadows, if you're going to classify Dark Shadows, you know, you read articles where it talks about cult TV shows, you know, that are in the genre television shows, Dark Shadows is on that list. It's, it's just mm-hmm. going to be there. So if you're not predisposed to liking that sort of thing, I can see how that would be shocking, I guess, <laughs> when you start, when you throw in a witch with, you know, voodoo dolls, just sticking pins and voodoo dolls and stuff like that, and Jeremiah coming out of the grave and... Barnabas rising as a vampire and things like that. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly where these people jumped ship, but these were typical soap viewers, and they just at some point said, well, this is getting ridiculous. Might have been when the soap opera elements were almost jettisoned in favor of these monster storylines, too. 
you know, because it really was not much of a soap opera in terms of the focus of the show was not on the love love affairs and there were some love there were of course love interests and all that but they didn't dominate the show the way they did in other soaps. Even from the start, it was gothic romance. You know, you had those Jane Eyre-ish qualities to the show uh, right from right from the start. I mean, all of those characteristics were present, which immediately visually set it apart from other daytime soaps at the time. You had Joan Bennett, a movie star, in the show, you had a live, well, not live, but a your orchestra that was, well, the music was played live on those records, but you had Bob Cobra. Um, those shows, the daytime shows at the time, didn't have any of that stuff going on. So it was really different right from the get-go. But anyway, getting back to 1897, we find out that Laura was married to Jeremiah. Uh, at one time. Barnabas remembers her when he was 12. Uh, and again, this is a sort of another thing where people go, well, how can Jeremiah be married to Laura if he was the same age as Barnabas? I always felt that like, Jeremiah, even though he said, oh, we're the same age, you, you, sometimes you say that even if it's like you're related to a relative who's a few years older than you, you can say, uh, you know, I have cousins who would say, oh, we're about the same age, but they might be like three or four years older than I am. So maybe Jeremiah was a young groom at the time. You know, maybe he was 16 and Barnabas was 12 or something like that. It was the 18th century. You know, maybe he got married pretty young to Laura. And that's why Barnabas remembers Laura from his childhood. The portrait that he finds of Laura, there's a lot of great stuff happening there history-wise with Barnabas and Laura. Laura determines that Barnabas is an enemy and must be destroyed. Her new acolyte, Dirk Wilkins, is on board for this as well. Dirk Wilkins, played by Roger Davis, who's the caretaker at Collinwood, becomes uh, Laura's uh, sort of servant here. Uh, and Laura is about to stake Barnabas, and Angelique stops Laura from staking Barnabas, setting up this great adversarial Angelique versus Laura, which I thought was really cool because Angelique's a witch, so her weakness is fire. You know, a witch can be destroyed by fire for the rules of dark shadows and, and horror in general i think it is just a fire and laura is a being of fire uh so that kind of sets up a really cool kind of uh dynamic there and i love how they have ultimately outsmart Laura because she's back to her old tricks of wanting to take her children into the flames and the afterlife with her. Uh, and I love the the trick that Bar Angelique and Barnabas pull where Angelique makes Laura look very old and the kids don't recognize her and thus she is consumed in flames and the children are spared their horrible fate. Which makes me wonder how did this go down in the original run of events before Barnabas went back in time, because what stopped Laura from taking the children into the flames the first time? Or did she? Maybe she succeeded in taking Nora and not Jane. Who knows? I don't I don't know. You know, we don't really know what happened in the first run of events before Barnabas used the I Ching to go back in time. Well, you're one of the few people who actually kind of gets that, because I talk to people and they want to make it a circular thing like, Barnabas was always there. Mm, yeah. and, but if Barnabas is always there, then he can't change anything. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I actually even did a audio script that I was, uh, I had pitched a script to um, Big Finish, but it didn't get picked up by them. So, but I did, I wrote the thing anyway, and it kind of deals with that. I don't want to go into too much of that right now, but I often want to do that myself. Like, what, what was the, and same with 1840, what was the original, what went on in the original story? Yeah. Like, 
especially with 1840 because they have yeah. a playroom and then it hardly ever gets it's shown. I mean, yeah, it doesn't but, line up at all. Uh, barely right. with 1970, summer 1970. So yeah, that I've wondered that as well. What was the original run of 1840 like? What happened there that was so distinctly different? At least 1897, a lot of the events sort of line up or fate sort of steers things like with with the skeleton in the room like Collinwood must have its victim for that room like it's not Quentin this time and this run of events it ends up being Trask who's walled up in that room and that's he becomes the, the skeleton in the room but of course when the kids find that skeleton in the present day in the original run of events it was supposed to be Quentin uh, right. so but then in the next run of events, when Barnabas changes history, things get altered, but that room still claims its victim. We still get Trask walled up in there anyway. So I think the writers got confused. I don't blame too many fans when they can't really grasp the fact that time changed because mm -hmm. they pretty much say that, that oh, the skeleton must have been Trask when the kids mm -hmm. dug, dug it up. But it wasn't. I mean, it, it wasn't. They're, they're really very clear on that, that it's Quentin. Quentin's talking to them, telling them to bury it. Yep. I don't buy it. That was not Trask. Yeah, he wasn't even wearing the same clothes. It was it was Quentin. He was dressed as Quentin. I mean, it was yeah. it was Quentin. It's just just history was changed, and that the skeleton in the second run of events was what the altered run of events was Trask. Um, exactly. Yeah, but I would like to. It would be it would be fun to see. I don't know. I don't know how they do it, but like a novelization maybe or something where you do see like what took place originally in this story before Barnabas changed it, especially 1840, because it's so different from what we see in summer 1970. So um, Laura is destroyed, uh, Dirk, uh, Barnabas bites Dirk, uh, who is uh, turned into a vampire. Uh, he dies uh, unintentionally, uh, but he was not meant to die, but he dies, rises as a vampire. And then he starts preying on Judith and on Rachel Drummond and demanding that Barnabas bring Laura back from the dead and Barnabas you know tells us he can't do that Dirk is causing all kinds of problems here. Meanwhile, Trask uh, is hired Evan Hanley to put Tim Shaw in. As Tim Shaw is a teacher at Worthington Hall, a friend of Rachel Drummond's or childhood. They were at both at Worthington Hall together, uh, and they do this Manchurian candidate storyline where uh, Tim Shaw is brainwashed basically into murdering Minerva Trask to get her out of the picture so that Reverend Trask can marry Judith and become the master of Collinwood. And then Trask, jerk that he is, you know, has uh, Evan Hanley conjure an image of Minerva haunting Judith. Judith is committed to the insane asylum. So that Tra Trask is really, I mean, if you're going to pick a villain in this storyline, I think Trask is probably uh, even you have all these supernatural characters operating, but I have Trask is like the worst of the worst here. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. So, you know, we got, uh, we got Judith is driven mad. Meanwhile, Magda realizes that she has uh, cursed her own family when she finds out that Jenny had children and she's horrified by this. Um, and she's desperately now trying to remove the curse. Uh, she tells Barnabas of this mystical talisman, the hand of Count Potofi. This this was dropped a couple of times. You mentioned the forest of Ajdan and all this with Count Potofi earlier on. And then they actually went there with whole Count Potofi thing. Uh, and we get this next big arc with Count Potofi. She, she, she retrieves it's. It is the severed hand 
of this mage who uh, was an enemy of the gypsies, uh, and they turned him into a werewolf. Uh, and he was the last known man to own a unicorn. And in werewolf form, he slaughtered the unicorn. Uh, as payment for removing the curse, um, the gypsies took his hand. Most of his mystic power was focused in this, in his, this withered, creepy looking hand. Uh, and so they severed his hand uh, in exchange for removing the werewolf curse. And ever since then, Count Patofi has wanted to, to get his hand back. So Magda gets his hand. Maybe it was sort of a monkey's paw kind of a kind of a deal with it or the beast with five fingers too kind of a hybrid between the two the, the hand can make your wishes come true or it can do horrible things to you um, but the, the plan is to use the hand to remove the werewolf curse from quentin and I love Quentin as a werewolf. It's just there's so much fun with that storyline and trying to remove the curse with the hand. Any thoughts on that, on the hand of Count Patofi? Oh, well, um, like you said, it's it's definitely the monkey's plot, although it doesn't always backfire on. Sometimes it does. No. With, they kind of change it a little bit. Mm-hmm. But that was amazing, too. Not just the fact that they used it as a token of magic, but it was the way it just kept changing from hand to hand who's going to have it now who who is going to possess it now and what would they do to get it how would how would they get it back there's just one way of keeping the everybody involved keeping so many characters i mean the the question is when you have this huge cast what do you what are you going to do to keep everybody busy yeah um, you, you know you're going to get because we've seen so often where you have these great actors and they're just sidelined well take clarice blackburn i mean yeah. as she was great as minerva it's really too bad that some of her last episodes, she's just sitting there pantomiming, you know, playing the playing the ghost or whatever, or the, mm-hmm. the ghost, or whatever she was, image of her. So, yeah, I, it's true. There were so many characters at play that it was. I think it must have been a challenge to keep all those balls in the air. You know, keep everybody. And it's a good point that the talisman, that hand, served as a really good way to involve other characters in the story because that hand changed changed hands several times a lot of everybody wanted to get that uh so you saw several characters acquire the hand and use it uh, at, at various points um we forgot to mention too that dirk wilkins who was staked earlier on he killed uh he had judith kill rachel drummond because barnabas wouldn't bring laura back so rachel drummond is another she's she's off the table now she's she's been killed uh dirk has been staked so he's gone, which opened the door for Roger Davis and Catherine Lee Scott to come back yet again as to other characters, Charles Delaware Tate, the artist, and uh, uh, Kitty Soames, uh, Lady Hampshire, uh, which was a fun character to watch Catherine Lee Scott play as well, uh, sort of the, a, a sort of a scheming character a little bit, you know, but it turns out she actually, not only does she look like Josette, she actually is, jo- she is the reincarnation of Josette. This time, she really is the reincarnation of Josette. All the other times, yeah, she looks like Josette, but she's not Josette. This time she actually is. And Charles Delaware Tate, we have this great thing going on here with Tate and, uh, you know, this Amanda Harris, this painting that he paints, whatever he paints comes to life because he has this Faustian bargain with Count Patofi, who is going to show up quite soon with Aristide, played by Michael Stroka, who's, what a fun pair those two are. So oh, it's just so much fun to watch. 
So we have, um, so, okay. I'm, I'm all over the place here with this. There's so much going on in the storyline. It's kind of difficult yeah. to, to remember yeah. everything, you know, but we're trying to hit, hit the big stuff. Um, so Patofi's hand, uh, Julianka is summoned. She is a gypsy who is, comes to seek the hand, uh, to get the hand back from the Romana tribe, King Johnny Romana. So she, agrees to remove the curse from Quentin, but is killed mysteriously before she can do that. Who was she killed by? Well, we find out it's going to be Count Patofi. It was Victor, Victor Fenn Gibbon shows up at Collinwood, played by the great Thayer David. Uh, it's funny, so many actors played more than one character in this one storyline. Uh, mm-hmm. As multiple characters, usually they play a new character in the story, like we saw 1795, everybody played a new character, but they didn't play multiple characters in the same right. storyline. With 1897, you're getting a couple of characters for each of some of these uh, actors, um, but such a, a very distinctly different performance versus his Sandor. Uh, we get this evil, dark mage, but quite charming and entertaining to watch, Count Patofi, and his very vain, colorful sidekick, Aristide. Um, now, a lot of people refer to Patofi as a warlock, and he, he I've seen fans, it, I don't consider, but like, to me, a warlock is affiliated with Satan, uh, you know, like somebody like Judah Zachary, or some people say Nicholas Blair is a warlock, some people say he's a demon, but either way, it's affiliated with Di- Diabolos, you know, whereas Patofi seems to be a very independent agent. He says, I have but one God and his name is Patofi. And to me, like when I see Count Patofi and this whole mythology with the forest of Ajdan and killing the unicorn and having this mystical hand, he strikes me very much as like a something out of a, a dark fantasy or a fairy tale, almost like a dark fairy tale. He's more like a mage or, or a wizard who's kind of found his own way to power without selling his soul necessarily, but he's uh, a different type of magical user, I guess, or sorcerer in the show. Yeah, he never references like any Dark Lord or anything. I mean, no. I don't think, yeah, it, it, I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, he's not, he's not, the, it's not the same as Nicholas who answers to somebody. Tophie never really answers to anybody. No, no, he's, uh, yeah, he's, he's, he, yeah, he, he does his own thing, but his, his uh, primary motive for showing up uh, in Collinsport is to get the hand back, to be reunited with his mystical hand. Now, it's Kompatovi still has power without the hand, but the hand is what really gives him immense power. Uh, and uh, it's really interesting to see a backstory of how that came to be. Like, how did Count Patofi enchant his hand to such a degree? Like, what did he do to acquire such power and focus it in that one place? You know, I, I, that would be a fun backstory to see something like that. Um, but Patofi shows up and he's he starts causing trouble, introduces himself as Victor Fengibbon. We find out he's Count Patofi himself. Uh, when when the great scene where the fake hand comes off and you find out it's it's him. Uh, and he does all kinds of terrible things. He uh, causes, oh, I forgot to mention Pansy Faye. How could I forget Pansy? Carl Collins, the prankster Collins, shows up with his, with his, uh, his fiance, these I would I want Carl and Pansy to have their own spin-off series, honestly. <laughs> They're just so much it's such a something so different from any because Dark Shadows can be very somber and grim and serious. And but then you have these crazy characters like Carl and Pansy. And I love the scene where Carl introduces Pansy 
to Barnabas and she comes in and does the, I'm going to dance for you. And she sings this whole number. But Barnabas is just staring at her like, what is going on? <laughs> what am I watching right now? <laughs> yeah, people often bring up Oscar Wilde when they talk about the picture of Dorian Gray. But mm-hmm. a lot of it reminds me of like the importance of being earnest. Oh, of course, that's all elements in picture of Dorian Gray. Also, there's a lot of scenes from Barnes being earnest are reflected, you know, like that dialogue, there's similar dialogue mm-hmm. in the book. Um, but th- that's one of the charms of 1897 for me is because it's got a lot of comedy, as you said, but it doesn't impact the drama of the story. Mm-hmm. It's almost like Buffy in a way without the helpful references. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Buffy, they're constantly referring back to things that they're constantly referencing other shows, but right um movies yeah I'm, gl- I'm so glad dark shadows never did that because that keeps it in its own dark brigadoonness fred said you know um but pansy uh, and carl yeah i mean there are these comedic characters but they're in this gothic grim world but you'd always see that too and if you watch hammer films like some of the villagers or or universal films you know you get some there is some lightheartedness amidst the amidst the spookiness so i think that actually enhances the events because you do get those moments of comedic relief but it doesn't cross the line into you know, uh, when Stuart Manning was here, he was talking about the elements of farce, and those are present, but I don't feel Dark Shadows ever crosses that line into farce, and that adds a nice flavor to it, uh, and 1897 definitely has that going going for it. But we had Carl and Pansy. Pansy is killed early on by Dirk, but Pansy's spirit is put into Charity Trask's body by Count Potofi. Uh, so Charity, uh, Nancy Barrett, who was this very holier-than-thou kind of pious uh, daughter of Reverend Trask, now is this body showgirl possessed by the spirit of this body showgirl. And clearly Nancy Barrett is having a lot of fun playing pansy possessing charity. And, but there's also a tragedy to it, I think, because of course, Barnabas, during the course of events, Barnabas kills Carl. I know a lot of fans hate that this happened and I, I loved Carl. So it made me sad, but it also reminds one that Barnabas is a vampire and he is unpredictable. You don't mess with Barnabas. Like, you don't, he's, Carl found out he's a vampire. That's it. You know, that's that's how that's what Barnabas as that's how Barnabas rolls as the kids, you know, like yeah. he's not a good guy. He's not a good guy. He's, he's not, he, I mean he's shades of gray. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he can be, he can be, but he can also be extremely dangerous. But I think that's that's part of the fun of Barnabas, is that he is unpredictable there's something he's a vampire there's something scary about barnabas i think if you defang barnabas you know metaphorically speaking it losing that edge makes him less interesting i think having that potential danger there with regard to barnabas makes it makes him even more compelling to watch so but sadly at the expense of carl who was a fun character but then it creates a really nice tragic element to even though pansy is body and over the top and fun there is a sadness because now the spirit of this dead showgirl is possessing this uh daughter of of a minister but she's searching for Carl. She's, she, you know, she knows Bartley that Carl was killed, you know, and it's kind of interesting comeuppance that it is Pansy possessing Charity who ends up staking Barnabas or what she thinks is Barnabas kind of does close that circle a little bit, I think. Right. You know, interesting. It's just an interesting little 
thing that happens there that I, I haven't really seen um, mentioned. Um, not only does Patofi do this, he does all, he takes possession of Jameson, which is so much fun to watch too. David Hennessy playing Thayer David's Count Patofi was a blast to watch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought he did a great job as Patofi. Yeah. And there's one great scene in the drawing room where he's going to drink brandy and Edward says, what are you doing? <laughs> he stops him. <laughs> and then he gets some, uh, he gets another glass and he's drinking it. And Edward sees it. He says, mineral water, good for the digestion. <laughs> but you mentioned that we got the great scene of Barnabas killing Carl at the expense of the character. But I think John Carlin was leaving the show temporarily anyway. Sure. And instead yeah. of just, instead of just having Carl kind of go off to Atlantic City with Pansy or, or just, take off because he's sad because Pansy died. They opted to have him go out with a bang. Yeah, exactly. It was great. There was a key out at that great dream sequence too, where he's at Pansy's show and uh, they did some really fun, fun stuff with him. But yeah, I thought it was a good way to get him off, uh, off the chessboard. Um, and it reinforced the fact that Barnabas is, he is a predator. I mean, he is, Barnabas can be scary, and I think that's part of what's fun about Barnabas. Um, it's not the only thing about Barnabas. He can also be very compassionate. He he's, can be very tragic, but he can also be very terrifying as well when he wants to be. Um, so Patofi does it. He, he makes Edward think he's a servant, the servant of the Earl of Hampshire. He thinks he's a, a butler. Uh, he's doing all kinds of things to get the hand back. Ultimately, he succeeds in getting the hand back and is reunited with the hand. And now Patofi is at the height of his powers. Patofi and Aristide are causing all kinds of problems. Patofi sets his sights on Quentin. He sees Quentin as, a, as an apt pupil. <laughs> Quentin is, you know, he sees the potential uh, in, in Quentin for, for evil. Evil. Uh, but he's also, you know, he's he's definitely fascinated by Quentin and um, cures him or has Charles Delaware take paint the portrait. As you mentioned, the picture of Dorian Gray is now worked into the storyline tapestry of Dark Shadows. He paints a portrait of Quentin and rather than Quentin transforming into a werewolf, the painting itself transforms into a werewolf during the full moon. And also bonus for making Quentin immortal, the painting ages instead of Quentin, uh, just like with uh, the picture of Dorian Gray. And also the painting reflects Quentin's sins and his degradation. Every bad thing he does, every immoral thing he does is reflected in the painting. Do you believe that the painting protects Quentin from, like if somebody were to say, shoot Quentin with a gun, would the painting absorb the gunshot? Does it just prevent him from aging or does it, because when Patofi cuts him in across the face with the glass, uh, he doesn't get cut, but the painting gets cut and starts bleeding. Remember that? So do you think it... mm I that was my impression when I was watching the when I was listening to or watching the show. I don't think the writers could make up their minds mm-hmm. uh, because really, I mean, it really seems that they're stating that when he gets cut and it, it, the wound just goes right away if it ever was there. But then later on, he seems to be afraid of getting shot or afraid of getting stabbed. So I, I think it's another case of the writers not really knowing or or maybe not having set rules. I mean, we see this a lot with continuity i mean yeah. jeremiah is old elderly jeremiah no he's the same age oh no. and then in 1897 i think he's back to elderly jeremiah when mm-hmm. they talk about the i think 
when Barnabas tells Magda to go and get the letters from Jeremiah, I think it's I think he's it's implied that he's the older Jeremiah again. Mm. And Angelique, was she with the Countess when she was a very young child, or was she already a hundred some years old? Yeah, you know, yeah. I like so. the fan theories that, you know, the, or spackling when I was talking with Kathy Rush, you know, that the sort of coming up with filling. I love doing that, like filling in the blanks. Uh, and I know some fans are like, well, it's just because the writers forgot or it's because the actors, the actor left the show. Or, and but it, I like coming up with solutions within the storyline itself. Like what how does this how, what can we it's like a puzzle. Like, how can we make this work? as a story uh, within the context of the story. Like, I think the big one people usually come up with with Miranda and Angelique is that Angel- she was reincarnated, that she was a yes. reincarnation of uh, Miranda. So, I mean, that that seems to I be think most pretty much become canon. I think so. I think died. that's so agreed upon, I think, by most fans at this point that it's kind of become sort of the go-to answer to that one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's definitely, there are definitely storyline inconsistencies with, I mean, I can imagine just cranking out new episodes five days a week, and then you have writers leaving the show and new writers coming in who don't, you know, that we didn't. And I try to explain this to, to friends, you know, that maybe, you know, modern television, like they can go back and look at the tape you know, or whatever the, on their computers, they can look at the file. Um, when Dark Shadows was on, that was not an option. It was very difficult to do that, to go, especially when you're into the, get into the hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Okay, which episode did we say this in? You know, it's very difficult. That's why they were, there's a famous story about the writers going to ask Dan Curtis and the writers go ask the fans outside and they knew the answer right away. I don't, do you know what the question was that they asked the fans? I've always wanted to know what that was. No, I, I don't. First time I heard that story was when Jonathan Fritz visited Newport and I met him. Oh yeah. He told me that story and I tried to ask him what, what it was about. He said, I just can't, I can't remember. I think they probably did it several times. Um, they, they probably were, it worked once they did it again. Uh, but to answer your question about Quentin, going back to that real quick, if I were doing a fan fiction story about Quentin, I would have him invulnerable. I think that's what the intention was. And uh, mm-hmm. I don't see how he could have lived all those years without being invulnerable. Right, I mean, right. You know, all the danger, the danger he got himself into and as reckless as he was. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really seems to be pretty explicitly stated when he gets cut. What, you it only works with a piece of glass, but not with a knife. Right, gun. right. I mean, you could say, well, maybe it was Potofi who did that magically, but I, I think you're right. I oh, think the yeah. paint, okay, yeah. you could say that, but I don't know. I think the painting, there is that in summer 1970, Quentin does get buried alive by Gerard, but the painting does protect him at the heartbeat in the painting, at least. For, I mean, I guess theoretically, if he wouldn't die, he would just be buried alive, like forever. <laughs> I don't know. You but the painting... Yeah, the painting looks pretty messed up. I mean, it, it looks like it's Quentin has sustained some damage over the, over the decades. So I I think the painting does absorb injuries. What do you What do you think, listeners? Let me know what your what your thoughts on this are in the comments or or email. Okay, so meanwhile we have Patofi reunited with the hand. Charles Delaware Tate uh, has painted discovers that whatever he paints becomes a reality. So uh, the painting of Amanda Harris shows up, who is this woman he's been painting for for years. He created her in his mind, uh, and this sort of Pygmalion kind of story happening here with um, with Amanda Harris, uh, who then falls for Quentin. It seems like every. 
every, every woman who enters Collinwood immediately falls for Quentin uh, because David Selby was David Selby was on the I mean, he became a teen idol. I mean, Jonathan Frid already was, too. But David Selby, I mean, there were he I, David Selby is very sexy. You know, he became this teen idol. He had there were Quentin postcards and or David Selby was in all the teen magazines and, um, you know, 16 magazine, Tiger Beat. You know, you had all, a lot of the Dark Shadows actors were featured in that magazine. But I think Selby probably was a famous story where the, I think it was 16 interviewed David Selby about uh, he mentioned he liked uh, banana bread. And then a few days later at the studio, he was inundated with fans mailing in banana bread. So he was like endless loads of banana bread that, that were sent in to David Selby. So Amanda Harris and uh, Quentin are uh, drawn to each other and much to Charles Delaware Tate's uh, rage uh, and, and chagrin. So this turns into to a whole thing with them going, what did you think of the whole Amanda Harris thing and Charles Delaware Tate? Um, well, it was interesting as far as it went, but that wasn't my, my, one of my favorite storylines. It was mm. okay. Uh, um, but personally, I thought you would have been better off with Beth. Poor Beth. Opinion. Poor Beth. I yeah. no, I, I agree. You know, poor Beth. She's Beth got shafted. You know, she <laughs> she to the point where she wound up working for Count Patofi for a time. She got bitten by Barnabas, put in Barnabas's power. She told Barnabas that Quentin was a werewolf, and then he she gets tossed aside for Amanda Harris and she ends up working for Count Patofi at one was so at one point you have Count Patofi Aristide and Beth which was just sad for the for the character you know I felt really bad and then she dies <laughs> she ends up dying when she falls off Widow's Hill because it was such a sad ending for the character you know well Donna McKechnie is a great actress but I don't think she got best she didn't get some of the best material uh, oh yeah I mean look at what look at what Terrain Crawford got in the, yeah. the line she got in the beginning they, they, she was plucky. She was witty. Stood up for in the beginning. She stood up for herself. But Donna McKechnie got got all the oh Quentin. Well, I guess Beth yeah. got a share of that too. Though, because I think of it. <laughs> I, I don't know. I just was. I just was not as interested in the Amanda arc. Yeah, I mean, it was. <laughs> They were setting up this big, you know, love story with Quentin and Amanda, and then it even carried over into into the present day. Um, meanwhile, Angelique, you know, we find out she has this. You know, the devil basically tells her, "You have to get a man to marry you." <laughs> this whole thing, I'm like, why? Like, what? Like, why? So she's supposed to try. Her and Quentin are going to get married, but then Quentin falls in love with Amanda, and then you get this whole thing happening with Angelique and Amanda and Quentin. Meanwhile, Count Patofi has uh, the gypsies. Count King Johnny has uh, is in search of the hand. Um, Aristide kills King King Johnny, but their the gypsies are after Count Patofi. And Count Patofi learns that Barnabas is from the future, and oh, he loves that. He is fascinated. This is his way to escape the gypsies to go to 1969. He's convinced Barnabas can take him with him into the future, but Barnabas tells Patofi, "I can't. That's not how it works." I can't, I can't do that. But Patofi will is undeterred and is determined to get Barnabas to take him to the future. Patofi takes away Barnabas. Patofi is very powerful. He takes away Barnabas's powers, his vampire powers. Barnabas can't, he can't disappear. He grabs his hand. He can't disappear, but he seems to take away his ability to do pretty much everything, turn into a bat or his strength, you know, the vampire, whatever, all, any ability that Barnabas has as a vampire seems to Patofi just by grabbing his hand and leaving that mark until this mark goes away you can't use your favorite trick you know it's, it's 
to disappear. That's a pretty, pretty powerful move for Patofi to do that. He traps Barnabas. And there's this whole scene with the I Ching where Barnabas is trying to use the I Ching, but Edward, who's now, dis- they've now discovered that Barnabas is a vampire. Barnabas has been revealed as a vampire. So vampire hunts take, this is exciting too. This is a major thing that I didn't even bring up. There's so much stuff happening in this story. Like, I mean, wow, Barnabas is uh, outed as a vampire. Trask confronts Barnabas. Now Barnabas is on the run. This is exciting. This has never happened in the show before where Barnabas is being hunted as a vampire. So this is cool. What did you think of all that, of the, the whole vampire hunt storyline? Oh, 1897 just never ceased to amaze me with what they would come up with next. Um, yeah. That was the chance to find, I mean, because he was always the big secret. And so mm-hmm. this was the one chance to have him. His secret is now out there forever. And every everyone knows it. They're, for once, he's not in control. I mean, he's, mm-hmm. he's uh, and, or at least he doesn't seem to be in control. Yeah. Because we know that he actually did orchestrate things with Angelique to put people off his scent by mm-hmm. for creating a fake body and all that. The doppelganger. Yeah. Yeah. Doppelganger. Yeah. I don't want to necessarily go off on a big tangent, but one of the, the for me, the cardinal sin of the Depp movie was when Depp, so when Depp's <laughs> Barnabas is going around saying, I am a vampire. Because the, the heart of, yes. the, of Barnabas yeah. is that secret. I mean, yeah. Fred said that himself. He says, look, Fred, Barnabas is playing the lie. Yeah. And the lie is exposed. We yeah. see, this is finally see that lie exposed and everybody knows. Um, Agreed. He's hiding in different places and uh, it's really fun to watch. Um, but Barnabas's body in the present, when Edward discovers you know, Barnabas using the I Ching, he knocks the wands off the table. And Barnabas's body in the present just disappears, which is, I assume, I don't know what, what happened. And maybe it merged to with the Barnabas in the past. I don't know. Or maybe it's just kind of waiting and suspended inside. Some other dimension until Barnabas returns to the present. But Julia now is deeply concerned. Uh, Stokes thinks Barnabas has died, but uh, Julia is determined to find out what happened. Barnabas wrote that. I think this was kind of a stretch when uh, Barnabas leaves the note for Julia in the in the desk, and Amy happens to find it at just the right time. Like, what if somebody yeah. found that note in like you know, 1921, you know, instead of uh, 1969, you know, or 1940? 48, somebody found that note in the desk. It just so happened that Amy found it while this was going on. I guess maybe fate, the mysteries of fate, you know, and destiny. <laughs> well, we're kind of lucky that the body did disappear because if not, at the end of the storyline, when he go, I don't know if you mind me jumping ahead, but no, go he, for comes, it. he comes back to 1969 through a totally different means. Yeah. Be in 1795 and then the Leviathans. We'd be wondering, well, what happened to the body? Is he would he find his body in the basement? And are there two Barnabases now? Or you know, having the body disappear kind of made it convenient. Or it still doesn't explain everything, but at least we're not left with two theoretically two Barnabases in 1969. True. True. <laughs> This is that would pose an interesting conundrum for sure. And uh, don't even get me started on um, the return from 1840. We'll we'll save that for for that episode. Um, but yeah, so Julia uses the I Ching to go uh, send her astral body back to 1897 and does so successfully. Although she's very disoriented when she arrives in 1897, she's traumatized by the trip to the past. So now Julia, but Julia eventually she regains her senses 
and uh, becomes an, another major player in this storyline. Count Patofi real, finds out she's from the future, tries to kill her, but we find out Julia can't be killed because she's in her astral form. You know, Ar- Aristide sets up this sadistic trap where Barn- Barnabas opens the door, the gun will fire and kill Julia, but it goes right through the back of the chair. So Julia can't be killed in her astral form, but she's not going to be able to stay there long term. So as you pointed out, Barnabas and Angelique work together to Angelique created a doppelganger of Barnabas. And this is the Barnabas who is staked by charity, possessed by Pansy. Pansy Faye stakes Barnabas, but it's actually the doppelganger. Meanwhile, Julia and Angelique are, uh, Julia is shown Angelique how to administer the injections to Barnabas to suppress the vampire curse. And once Julia gets pulled back to the present, uh, Angelique continues to administer the cure. What's I don't, Julia's cure is not really a cure. I never thought it sort of suppresses the curse for, for a period of time, but I don't think it ever fully would get rid of the curse. But Barnabas is able to function during the day. You know, Barnabas shows up now there's this, what, what, what is this? There's a vampire staked in the coffin, but there's also Barnabas alive. So, and he claims that this other Barnabas, this probably, I guess the original Barnabas from 1795 put him, he was the real descendant and the vampire in the coffin put him under his power. Patofi has also realizing that Quentin is immortal. He doesn't need Barnabas to take him to the present. He has switched his spirit with Quentin's spirit. So now Quentin is trapped in Count Patofi's body and uh, Patofi is in Quentin's body, thus uh, theoretically escaping the gypsies that way. So we have a really fun dynamic here too, where David Selby playing Count Patofi and Thayer David playing Quentin. And there's a great scene where Patofi possessed by Quentin and it's Thayer David and Louis Edmonds and Edward. And he tells Edward, I am Quentin. (laughs) Edward goes, hmm, (laughs) just continues pouring the bread. Just such a great reaction. Yeah. Do you remember that? That was great. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I just love this insanity of this show. It just You just never know what's going to happen next. And then you have that kind of reaction to it. Like, oh, well, whatever. There, there's so much that happens here. There's this whole attempt to put Quentin back into his rightful body and which eventually uh, does succeed. Quentin and Patofi switch back. Patofi is injured, stabbed by Aristide. He thinks it's Quentin. Yeah. Aristide stabs Patofi, but it's actually Patofi back in his own body. Patofi is dying uh, ostensibly from the stab wound. So he has Charles Paint. Aristide's old jailer, Garth Blackwood. John Harkins was so good as Garth Blackwood. In fact, it's so funny, like uh, when I had Mark B. Perry on here talking about Dark Shadows Reincarnation in the YouTube comments, somebody posted, bring back Garth Blackwood. I would watch that. If Garth Blackwood came back, that would be amazing. Um, but yeah, John Harkins is this is like black clad jailer with a sort of a Scottish accent. You know, he's after Aristide. He conjures up Garth Blackwood from hell, apparently. And Garth Blackwood is dragging his leg and he's after Aristide. And that's so much fun to watch. Poor, poor Aristide. He's such a jerk, but he is he's really He's such a coward. You know, it's so much fun to watch watch him, his reactions. I know uh, Dominique Lamsey, who I had here for the 1795 discussion. She's She loves uh, Aristide. Uh, so sorry, Dominique. Uh, Aristide meets his end with, with Garth Blackwood. But hey, it's Dark Shadows. Who knows? Maybe maybe Aristide's ghost can can come back. Well, why not? He kind of <laughs> does come back in Bruno. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, true. Yeah. And uh, Laszlo. I mean, I'm not saying they're 
they're the same character by any means, but yeah, you know, they have a lot of the same qualities. Mm-hmm. Barnabas is now returned and is reintroduced himself to the family, and they buy. You know, they see the the two bodies. They burn the vampire. The, the, what they think is the vampire, and this is the real descendant of Barnabas. He is a human, so the, you know. So he comes to Collinwood. He had seen Kitty prior to all this happening, but he had seen Kitty Soames, and she starts to have glimmers of memory uh, when she sees Barnabas's portrait. She reacts to it. She literally is the reincarnation of Josette. She has shown up at Collinwood to marry Edward to, to sort of Lord Hampshire has killed himself because of Count Patofi's involvement with Patofi because she has a history with Patofi too. And so she's trying to get Edward to fall for her. But meanwhile, she's starting to have these glimmers of memory of Barnabas. And it turns out she has, she is Josette. And in the meantime, Count Patofi is dying, comes up with the, this final scheme to s- then switch bodies with Barnabas because he knows Barnabas is going to be uh, in 1969, but that doesn't work out either. And suddenly Garth Blackwood bursts in. He, there's the Charles Delaware Tate has taken Quentin's painting uh, and hidden it in his cottage. Uh, Patofi and Garth Blackwood are duking it out. The, uh, a fire breaks out. The, the cottage is burned down. And uh, Patofi Patofi ostensibly meets his end, but Patofi's glasses are found outside of uh, Tate's studio. So, of course, you know, he can't, Tate says he can't get far without those glasses, but because he can't see well without the glasses. But I don't know. What do you think? Do you think Patofi, I, w- I was kind of surprised they never brought Count Patofi back. Really surprised, okay. actually. I was going to say the same thing. I was shocked that they didn't bring him back because, you know, it, it seemed like that was such a sequel hook there and it, it never happened. Yeah. I'm grateful to Mark Rainey for writing The Labyrinth of Souls because <laughs> it brings back elements of, of 1897 and Leviathan. It's one of it's my favorite Dark Shadows book mm-hmm. ever written in terms of what could have been a professional. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's right up there with all the others. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I was surprised they didn't bring him back. I, I don't know why. I, I imagine they would have if the show had kept going because the writers loved Count. They loved Count Patofi. They, they, they loved writing that character. So I'm guessing that if the show had continued on into 19, if they had come back to the present after like 1841 parallel time and we had another storyline, I bet you Count Patofi would have been brought back to the present somehow. Uh, because I think it was very intentional that they left his glasses outside the studio. Because how, how did those glasses get out there? He must have gotten out. I wonder if they would have, I mean, Leela Swift seemed to really prefer younger prettier soap opera people as uh, to me i i wonder that you know because she she seemed to write like they, they seem to want to write out all the older cast members like uh louis edmonds got written out fairly early on and um well not early on in 1840 but he did, he wasn't appearing in that many episodes there david didn't appear in too many until well maybe i guess he did do three characters in that story so maybe maybe i'm wrong with there i don't know mm. So you, you think, yeah, I can see that. As when we got to even Leviathan, when he was brought in Jeb and then um, summer 1970 with Hallie and then you had Gerard and, and Daphne. And, and so I could see they were skewing a little a little bit younger, maybe with uh, with the actors. Um, maybe so. Um, I, I don't know. Um, I, I know Dan Curtis by that last year was kind of checked out a lot with what was going on because he was focusing on on movies and wanted to do lead up to House of Dark Shadows and then the success of that and then going into Night of Dark Shadows and maybe he wasn't really 
making as many of the decisions. I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, I still say, I don't know. I still think we would have seen Patofi though. I, I suspect we would have, if the show had still continued being successful, I think yeah. they would have brought him back um, to, to have a storyline with Quentin in the, in the present day. I think that would have been, like, I felt like Quentin was kind of, I don't want to say wasted, but kind of not used to his full potential once 1897 ended when we got back to the present. It was great that he was there, but I felt like they could have done more with his character in the present day. And they kind of didn't do as much as they, I think, should have with that character. Yeah, he he was doing his own thing with Amanda and and Leviathan. Mm -hmm. And then he didn't really factor in as much to with the Leviathan story as I thought he would. Parallel Time was a nice story, a good story, but a lot of things happened to him rather than the other way around. And that seems to be happening a lot. 1840, he's in the uh, the prison a lot, you know, on he's got the Vicky role, basically. And then in 1841, Parallel Time, a story I love, mm-hmm. really doesn't do that much except, like, get on Gabriel for being a coward. It's like, mm-hmm. Morgan, let, let's gang up on Gabriel. Me, Morgan, you, you didn't need both of them. Well, it's, it would have been more effective maybe if Quentin had played the Morgan role. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I love that you love 1841 Parallel Time because a lot of fans don't like that storyline because it's so disconnected from the main time band. But I think it's it's a pretty good storyline. It's grim. It's a grim it has a, I like the tone of it. It has a, its own kind of flavor, too, like all the other storylines. I do wish, though, that there was some it was a stronger link to the main time band or that they had at least come back again at the very end to the main timeline because it was almost an island unto itself, you know? I liked it for the very same reason a lot of people didn't like it. A lot of people didn't like it because Fred wasn't playing Barnabas. Mm-hmm. I liked it because he wasn't playing Barnabas. We get mm-hmm. to see something different. Yeah. Uh, same with Lara Parker. We mm-hmm. get to see them in different roles. Uh, there were some things I thought were kind of ridiculous, like why is there a parallel Julia who's really got nothing to do with the other Julia, but the yeah. same. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I I liked it too. Um, I just wish, and it didn't definitely. I I enjoyed seeing Fred and Parker in, in new roles as well, but I think for me, I would have liked a stronger tie to the main story it just feels like with 1970 parallel time barnabas is in that time band and then julia is in that time band too they they go from the main time band into parallel time with this one it's sort of we just kind of pan into parallel time and there we stay for the for the rest of the series and it would have been nice to have a stronger anchor to the main time band but that said i think as a storyline on its own i enjoyed it too um it was fun to see the wuthering heights mashed up with the lottery with shirley jackson's the lottery and it had a a very dark and somber quality to it i i felt it was a it was an interesting feel to it brutus was very scary in audio brutus yeah Uh, (laughs) when i was listening to the stories you know you you hear him and then morgan is a lot more effective when you just hear his voice because it's like radio and and keith Prentice has almost like a radio voice yeah that works really it worked really well i was very disappointed in the character when i finally saw him not that I thought he was bad. I mean, it had nothing to do with the way he looked. It's just that he didn't match up with the voice I heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was one of the few actors who I didn't see. I don't think I saw any pictures of him. He appeared very irregularly, if not at all, in the Tate Team magazines. Because by then, the show was pretty much almost over. Yeah. I mean, he, I mean, he may have appeared in some of the Teen magazines, but I didn't have any of yeah. pictures. And fans, I don't remember any fanzines or very many times where they would reprint pictures of him. And and during that time, I remember listening. Uh, there, somebody sent me 
uh, back in the fanzine days too. Somebody sent me a tape from the ads, you know, I got an audio tapes of some of the stuff that was at, because that wasn't in syndication at that time. I think it was some 1840s stuff, I want to say. And that was really cool to hear. That was the way of experiencing that stuff, that and the concordances and, and things like that, because we didn't have those episodes in syndication. So unless you did have pictures of those characters, you know, you wouldn't know. Uh, luckily, 1840 Concordance, uh, they had TV photos in the back. Kathy had those TV photos in the back pages of that that were fans you know, in 1970 and 71, we're taking pictures of their TV screens so you could actually see some of the characters and stuff. But that was, by the end, there were less and less of those, for sure. Um, speaking of the end, let's wrap up uh, 1897 here. Uh, so uh, Josette, uh, now uh, Lady Hampshire, uh, after much trial and tribulation, uh, Kitty becomes more fascinated by the portrait of Josette, and eventually she travels back to 1795 through the portrait, bringing Barnabas with her into the portrait. And thus that wraps up Barnabas's stay in uh, 1897. Quentin's uh, death has been prevented. uh, And uh, in the present day, David is no longer uh, possessed by Quentin because he never died. He never became a ghost. He never haunted Collinwood. And uh, they all remember him. They still remember him though, which is interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I always imagine they must have two sets of memories, like one of of the events that took place before Barnabas changed history and one of the new set of events after Barnabas changed history. Maybe eventually those original memories fade somewhat. I don't know, but I, I kind of liked that David and Amy remembered because it was a great, it was a great scene where, you know, where they actually see Quentin in the present and they're, they're terrified. <laughs> I thought that was really fun. Um, and then this, that whole scene where Amy under the control of the Leviathans, under the influence of the Leviathans, plays Quentin's music to try to let him know, I know who you are, kind of. There's some fun, fun stuff that happens there, but I know what you're saying. It kind of doesn't make sense now that history has been changed. Those events ostensibly never took place, but in Dark Shadows, I think you get two sets of of events, like the characters seem to remember the original run of events. That said, though, when 1840 happens, that isn't the case because when we see Elizabeth that last time, it was as if nothing had ever happened to Gerard. Right. You know. So the mysteries of time travel, time works in mysterious ways. We don't know what effects uh, it will have at any given moment. There's so much time travel and parallel universes and things like this that have taken place at Collinwood, the stairway through time. They must have really screwed with time to such a degree at Collinwood that we get all kinds of different effects, perhaps due to all of that, that might manifest in different ways. Nick Finish did a really good story in which Hallie is haunted by having two memories of of dying and not dying. I think I, it was the phantom carriage. Is that it? I think it was the phantom carriage. Yes. 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 That was good. Yeah. Uh, And I think that's what, what happens. I think you get those two sets of memories. Um, And then, as you mentioned, uh, you know, Judith discovers, gets out of the the mental hospital. She realizes what Reverend Trask has been up to and that he was trying to take over Collinwood uh, and use her uh, to send her to the madhouse. So she comes up with the scheme with Tim Shaw to dispatch Reverend Trask by walling him up uh, a lot. All the Trasks seem to get, you know, Barnabas walled up the original Reverend Trask. This one gets locked in the room. The other Trask gets 
locked in parallel time, I guess. He gets put, put it, falls into that time band. Um, but this Trask gets walled up in the room. There's a great scenes with Judith calling him on the, on the telephone and she left the gun there for him and he, he kills himself. Uh, and so he becomes the skeleton in the, in the room. And that wraps up 1897. We were, all over the place because there's so much that happens in this storyline that it's difficult to cover everything. But I will eventually go back and drill in on on specific things. But how about some? Is there anything we didn't touch on that you wanted to address with regard to 1897, character wise or storyline wise? No, not really. Nothing really comes to mind. I mean, we hit most of the high points of it. I think so. No, I'd say nothing that really stands out in my mind at this moment. Okay. Closing thoughts on the storyline in general. Well, it's dark shadows at its height. If it has any flaws, I think towards the end, it really started to lose its way with I'm going to the future. I think that that might have dragged on just a little longer than it needed to. With Patofi uh, wanting to go to the future, you mean? Yeah, that there was nothing wrong with that storyline. It just, uh, I think it may have gone on just a little longer than, you know, there were too many episodes where he was saying, I shall go to the future. But um, I think they were trying to freak, they were trying to formulate what to do next. And they weren't really, sure, you know, they, they weren't really sure what to, what to do with these characters in the meantime. So they were kind of in a holding, just a little bit of a holding pattern at one point. Yeah. And, and then, of course, it, then it moves ahead and we go to the end of the storyline and we get great endings for a lot of characters and Garth Blackwood. Uh, yeah. I just, every, the penalty for everything is death. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The penalty, is death. <laughs> the penalty for harboring the prisoner is death with his chain. Oh, he, he was so much fun. And he, Harkin, John Harkins comes back as uh, Horace Gladstone in the in the uh, 1970 parallel time. He was fun as Horace Gladstone, really skeevy uh, character, too. Dark Shadows always had these great actors who are so theatrical. You know, they, they were larger than life. Uh, and there was a certain eccentric theatricality about them that I just loved. It was just fun to watch them. And it reminded me, it reminds me a lot of those classic horror films where you had a lot of actors like that who are coming from theater and just these big personalities and very distinct appearances as well. Um, but so many good characters, like, you know, Aristide, John Michael Stroke, Thayer David, Grayson Hall as Magda was so fun. Like, I don't, I feel like we didn't talk enough about Magda. She was a great character too. What a wonderful performance by great, her favorite character that she played on the, on the show, actually, you know, of course we love Julia, but Magda was such a 180 from Julia, such a different character for Grayson Hall to play. You can see she was really enjoying herself playing that role. And, uh, and of course we get the green series of bubblegum cards that came out mostly was 1897. Those are really fun to, to look at. That was my introduction to 1897 actually, because when I was a kid, my uncle had those bubblegum cards. He had the pink ones, the pink set and the green set. He didn't, I didn't have them all. He got a ton of them and he gave them all to me. Uh, so I would flip through those cards and wonder what was happening. And I'd see this gypsy, you know, looking at her crystal ball and, and stuff. And I'm like, what is this? Who is this? You know, and read the little quotes. So that was before I ever watched 1897 I knew the imagery of 1897 from those cards. Those are really cool, just 
memories that are kind of coming back to me of, of looking at those. Um, wonderful. All right, Joe. Well, is you, do you have anything on the horizon that you're working on right now or for Dark Shadows wise or otherwise? You know, I really should get to work on something. I am kind of disappointed in myself, but during COVID, I didn't do anything you know, on that on that front. I spent a lot of time on South Padre Island, too. So it was just kind of the work was so hectic and then it was just relaxed. Yeah, that was it. But um, I should I really should do something. I have I'll let you know if it comes up. All right. Sounds good. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining me uh, this evening. Oh, gosh, it's it was my pleasure. And, you know, you've been messaging me since the show started with really nice emails and comments about the episodes. And I really, really do appreciate that. Um, Folks, uh, if you enjoy this podcast, please do subscribe. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave us a review. Uh, If you're on YouTube, uh, definitely subscribe to the YouTube channel because I am going to be posting some exclusive videos down the road uh, that are not necessarily podcast episodes, but additional content. So uh, keep an eye on the YouTube channel. The best way to do that is to subscribe and ring the bell, as the kids say, so that you can be notified when new videos go up. If you subscribe through Spotify, uh, you know, uh, any of those feeds are really good to, uh, if they give you an option for reviewing or rating the podcast, please do so. And thank you so much for listening. Hey, everybody. This is Rob Floyd. And Phyllis Floyd. From the Phantasmo After Dark cult movie podcast. And we'll just say a few words about Mitch Ryan. Sorry to hear of his passing. You know, he's one of those guys that, aside from Dark Shadows, he was in tons of things. And one of those actors that we always like to talk about on our podcast, he's got that face that... You might not remember his name. He's that guy. He's that guy. But once you see his face, it's like, oh, yeah, that guy. I know a dozen things he's been in. And he had a respectable career, you know. And you don't really think about that a lot when you see these guys, how much stuff they've actually been in. Yeah. But he's, he had well over 130-some credits, a lot, of, a lot of film, a ton of TV. A ton of television. From the 60s through the... Uh, 70s and 80s. I think he did every cop show in the 70s and 80s. <laughs> but even, I mean, he had a pretty respectable career in movies, too. Indeed. Indeed. I know he did uh, recently, well, somewhat recently, he did Halloween, Curse of Michael Myers. He had a, a small part in that. Recently, in the last 20 years, 30 years. Well, ago. you know, that's <laughs> recently to me. How about you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the 80s are still 20 years. Ago, <laughs> That's know. right. It feels recent. Yeah, He also did a couple things with Clint Eastwood. He did uh, High Plains Drifter. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the you know, the good spaghetti Western stuff, too. Yeah. Right. Right. He was the general in Lethal Weapon. Probably a lot of people know him from that. I think he was also in Magnum Force with Clint Eastwood. Oh, that's right. He was, yeah. I need to go back and watch that. I haven't seen any Dirty Harry stuff in a while. Yeah, that'd be cool. We should do that. I know that was one of my dad's favorites. We yeah. watched lots of Dirty Harry movies. Gross Point Blank is probably my favorite. I love Gross Point Blank, but he was Debbie's dad in uh, Gross Point Blank. He yeah, was that's the, a good movie. Yeah, that was he's the mark, the assassin's mark. He's in the that point movie. of the movie, basically. Pretty much, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, you know, a lot of the shows he did. I mean, he did like Streets of San Francisco, uh, Cannon, Barnaby Jones, Rockford Files, Beretta, The Blue Knight. You know, like I said, every cop show in in the seventies. I think he, he did a Mission the- Impossible. Yeah, the <laughs> the uh, new Mission Impossible from the was that in the nineties? I think or eight, yes. no, that was the eighties. I think. Kai did a team heart to heart. Even did a Kenny Rogers Gambler movie. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, God, you know, his list. You could just you could sit here and read his list, and it would take you half the day. That's right. 
I mean, what? St. Elsewhere, Dallas. He was even. Oh, he was even Riker's dad in Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to go back and watch that, too. I haven't seen watching Next Gen in a long time. So I guess, you know, he already connects back to Planet of the Apes for you. <laughs> That's right. Easy, easy connection. <laughs> easy there. connection for yeah. Planet of the Apes there. But yeah, you know, sorry to hear of his passing, because again, he was, he was one of those familiar faces. I feel like we've lost so many recently, yeah. and, and it's really a shame. He was even in Stallone Judge Dredd. Oh, that's just a shame. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> well, we all got a pair dues somewhere, you know. That's true. But yeah, we, we, we've lost a lot of these uh, great character actors that we've grown up with. Right. You know, that are familiar faces, just almost as familiar as people you went to school with. Yeah, that's You know, right. if you're like us, or, and definitely like me, I know, grew up on television. Yep. And going to the movies as much as possible. So, you know, we're sorry to hear of his passing, but it's nice that uh, Penny's doing a little tribute here and glad that we could be a part of it. Indeed. Hi, my name is Joel Sainz. I host the podcast Resident of Collinwood on YouTube, and I'm here to talk about Mitchell Ryan, the he had passed away this month on the 4th. And when I think of Mitchell Ryan's performance as Burke Devlin, it always brings a smile to my face. I mean, people say he played the Burke, best Burke Devlin, and I agree. He, What Mitchell Ryan brought to that role can never be replaced or duplicated, in my opinion. He... There's a moment where he's he's standing at the train station and Victoria approaches him and she says about a ride in the town, about how, how do they expect people to get in the town. He says, by broomsticks and unicorns. And he's smiling at her. He's sort of somewhat flirting with her a bit. And she's, she smiles back and she says, he, he says, or chauffeured cars and he says do you like a lift and she says oh thank you mr and he says devlin burke devlin and she says my name is victoria winters and he says welcome to the beginning and end of the world miss winters and he's smi smiling at her somewhat and she goes i'm not going that far just to a house called collinwood do you know it? And he goes from smiling to such a serious look. I mean, he changed it in a second, you know, quicker than I can snap my finger. And you want to talk about just a telltale sign of how this, he really let you know. Mitchell Ryan plays the best Burt Devlin. He really knows how to sell his character, I mean, fast. He knows how to play a heel or a baby face in an instant. Now, do I consider Burt Devlin a heel, a bad guy? No, I actually consider him a hero. I often look at Burt Devlin, and I talked about this with my buddy Patrick McRae. We had paid tribute to the late Mitchell Ryan. I often compare Burt Devlin to the shadow a bit because he was the Collinses have money, they have connections, they have wealth, they have, you know, people who support them and, you know, people who will get them information well or, you know, <laughs> gather information for them. So Burt is sort of taking the Collins family 
he has money. He hires a private investigator. He uses Mrs. Johnson, hires, recruits Mrs. Johnson as a spy. He's manipulating Carolyn and trying to sort of somewhat recruit Vicky. He's sort of taking the Collins family motto and sort of turning it onto them, you know, taking all the advantages they have and turning it against them, you know, and which I love. It's really, really well done. And I love the fact that it always surprises me when I go back and watch this and I see Bert kiss Vicky for the first time when Mitchell Ryan's Bert Devlin kisses Victoria Winters. It still shocks me to this day when I go back and watch it. And you really just have one of the best characters. I love his portrayal here. He he really brought something to this character that has not been duplicated in a well. And I'm not going to sit here and knock Anthony George. I do. I agree with my friend Patrick McCray. Shout out to him that he had. You know, the way they had wrote Burt Devlin for Anthony George was different than the way they wrote it for Mitchell Ryan. And I do think they sort of, like he was saying, that they wrote it for um, Anthony George, the way Anthony George sounded. And he had asked me, we had, we were talking about Barnabas's, Barnabas Collins's costume party that he had had for the period for 1795, where, you know, Roger dressed as Joshua, Elizabeth dressed as Naomi, you know, Victoria dressed as Josette, and Anthony George comes dressed as Jeremiah. And Patrick had asked me a really great question. He said, if that were Mitchell Ryan, do you think he comes dressed as Burke Dev, as Jeremiah, or do you think he shows up in a suit? And I said, I think he shows up in a suit if it's Mitchell Ryan. <laughs> and he goes, I agree. He goes, or if he shows up at all, he just might go to the Blue Whale, which I agree with. I think that's, you know, Mit Mitchell Ryan brought a cool and a demeat cool, calm demeanor to Burt Demlin, but knew when to get nasty. And I love that. I think that's, you know, before we get the the cool, suave Quentin, in many ways, that's Burt Devlin too. He's very suave, but he knows when that, you know, he knows when to, you know, punch or when he has to get physical or rough with somebody or just but put someone in their place. And I love the way he that Mitchell Ryan portrayed Burt Devlin. It's so, so amazing. And I'm sorry if I'm taking up a lot of time. Um, he really was just fantastic. Amazing, amazing, fantastic. Obviously, I'm a huge Halloween fan. So I loved his portrayal of Dr. Terrence Wynn in Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. There's a lot of great actors in there. Donald Pleasance, Marion Hagen, Paul Rudd is introduced in that movie. And I, even though Mitchell Ryan's not in it a ton, when he's on screen, he really steals that movie for me. I love when he's sitting in the chair and he's holding Danny and he just turns and smiles so sinisterly, but yet so sly at the same time. 
Um, my favorite Dirty Harry movie is Magnum Force, and Mitchell Ryan's character is in this. Mitchell Ryan is in this movie, and he plays this cop, this motorcycle cop. And Dirty Harry suspects Mitchell Ryan's character of the one who's who's killing the criminals in cold blood, because you know he's he delivers the line of a, a hood can kill a cop, but a cop can't kill a hood, and he delivers it with such convincing that you're sort of like, oh my god, is it him? He really just knew how to sell his characters and just get them over. It's it's crazy. A lot of how great he really was as an actor. A lot of young actor and actresses need to watch, go back and watch Mitchell Ryan. Not just as Burt Devlin. Yes, definitely as Burt Devlin, but the other roles he did as well. Again, I just want to give my deepest sympathies to the Ryan family, to his friends. Um, thank you for your time. And for as long as they lived, the dark shadows never truly dissipated, for there will always be terror at Collinwood. Terror at Collinwood is a Penny Dreadful production.